0: Hi, this is Kenny Duff, and you're listening to Word of Hope Christian Church in New Braunfels, Texas. Hi there, everyone, and welcome. I'm Pastor Tim with Word of Hope Christian Church in New Braunfels, Texas, and it's Sunday, August 6th, and this is your Sunday sermon. We're continuing in our sermon series called Win the Day. Today is part five of the series, and it's called Cut the Rope. Today's scripture reference is Mark chapter 4, verses 35 to 39. I've got a lot to share with you today in a short time, so before we get to it, let's have a word of prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for this amazing opportunity we have to study your word again. Lord, open our hearts to receive your truth today. I pray for wisdom for all of us in Jesus' name, and everyone said, Amen. In 1853, America hosted its first World's Fair in New York City. The organizers built an exhibition hall called the Crystal Palace to showcase the latest and greatest inventions. This is where a man named Elijah Otis stole the show by pulling off a stunt for the ages. Otis was the inventor of the elevator safety brake, but he had a hard time selling his idea to safety-first skeptics. So here's what he did. Otis stood on a platform high above the Crystal Palace. He had an man positioned above the elevator shaft. Then he yelled loud enough for everyone in the exhibition hall to hear, Cut the rope! The crowd held its collective breath as the elevator fell a few feet. Otis announced, All is safe, ladies and gentlemen, all is safe. The safety brake worked, as did the sales pitch. When Elisha Otis cut the rope, there was only a few buildings in New York City that were taller than five floors. Why? No one wanted to walk the stairs. In 1854, Otis installed an elevator in a building on Broadway, and the rest is history. By 1908, there were 538 buildings in New York City that qualified as skyscrapers. Fast forward 100 years. According to the Otis Elevator Company, the equivalent of the world's population rides an Otis Elevator every three days. I think it's safe to say that Elijah Otis turned the world upside down. How? There comes a moment when you need to cut the rope. Please hear what I'm about to say. Playing it safe is risky. The greatest risk is taking no risk. One, it maintains the status quo. Two, it leads to something called inaction regrets. According to psychologist Tom Gilovich, at the end of our lives, 84% of our regrets will be the things we would have, could have, and should have done, but did not do. It's not the mistake we made, as painful as that is, it's the opportunities we missed. Yes, you will experience a few fails and a few falls. Cutting the rope is about taking calculated risks. When I say calculated, I'm talking about a risk-reward ratio. I'm not advocating blind leaps. Keep both eyes wide open, but you'd better not focus on the wind and waves. The only way to walk on water is to keep your eyes fixed firmly on Jesus. Of course, you have to get out of the boat too. So open up your Bible or Bible app. Let's look at our scripture today, Mark chapter four, verses 35 to 39, and let's see what's happening. On that day when evening had come, He told them, let's cross over to the other side of the sea. So they left the crowd and took him along since he was already in the boat and other boats were with him. A fierce windstorm arose and the waves were breaking over the boat. So the boat was already being swamped, but he was in the stern sleeping on a cushion. So they woke him and said to him, teacher, don't you care that we're going to die? He got up, rebuked the wind and said to the sea, silence, be still. The wind ceased and there was great calm. In his book, Deep Work, Georgetown professor Cal Newport talks about a concept that he calls the grand gesture, and it takes a few different forms. It can be a romantic gesture, like getting down on one knee and proposing marriage. It can be a physical gesture, like taking a before picture before you start a diet or exercise routine. It can be a creative gesture, like the one-way missionaries a century ago who would pack their belongings into a coffin instead of suitcases because they knew they would not return. Simply put, a grand gesture is a defining decision, a calculated risk, a selfless sacrifice that doubles as a defining moment in your life. Let's make it personal. On October 31st, 1517, Martin Luther posted 95 theses on the doors of the castle church in Wittenberg, Germany. On December 1st, 1955, Rosa Parks refused to give up her seat on a bus in Montgomery, Alabama. On May 25th, 1961, John F. Kennedy said we would land a man on the moon and return him safely to the earth by the end of the decade. Any way you want to slice it or dice it, the genesis of the Protestant Reformation, the civil rights movement, and the space race were grand gestures. When it comes to goal setting, problem solving, and habit breaking, grand gestures are one small step, one giant leap. They are the point of no return, Now, I know I'm citing moments of historical significance, but even if they aren't newsworthy, grand gestures are no less noteworthy when it comes to our personal lives. I want to talk about the art and science of grand gestures for a moment, if I may. I'm going to cite some studies and some stories, but this idea is as old as altars. From Genesis to Revelation, the Bible is full of grand gestures. For instance, Noah builds a really big boat. Abraham puts Isaac on the altar. The Israelites circle Jericho for seven days. Benaiah chases a lion into a pit on a snowy day and kills it. Esther does a three-day fast. Elisha burns his plowing equipment. Ezekiel lays on his left side for 390 days. James and John drop their nets. Peter gets out of the boat. Zacchaeus climbs a sycamore tree. Paul shaves his head at Sancreia and the Ephesians build a bonfire and burn their scrolls. That's the tip of the iceberg, but those are tipping points. Those are the days when decades happen. Those are the inciting incidents that turn into defining moments. Each one of them, in their own unique way, cut the rope. For some, it was a huge moment. For others, the pain of staying the same was greater than the pain of change. One way or another, there comes a moment when you need to cut the rope. Let's get back to our text. Look at verse 35. It says, on that day, when evening had come, he told them, meaning Jesus, let's go over to the other side of the sea. Let me set the scene. The Sea of Galilee is about 13 miles long and 8 miles wide. Jesus has been preaching all day to a very large crowd that had gathered on the hillside and beach. As the sun sets, Jesus tells the disciples to set sail across the sea to Bethsaida. I'm sure Peter and the others were not very concerned because they were used to fishing at night. I would encourage you read John 21.3. And storms usually came in the afternoon, so there was really no worry about this. Then in verse 36, it says, So they left the crowd and took him along, since he was already in the boat, and other boats were with him. Now here's a little sermon within a sermon. Sometimes you need to leave the crowd behind. How do you do that? Well, I'm glad you asked. Almost all of us are suffering from information overload. We're bombarded with news and fake news every minute of every hour of every day. We've got online advertisers vying for our attention with clickbait. We've got social media algorithms targeting us based on our likes, follows, and search history. In my opinion, consuming social media, which is different from creating social media, is like eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I'm not convinced that we were designed with the capacity to know everything about everything all the time. I'm certainly not suggesting that we bury our head in the sand. We need to be praying about the news, which is very different from watching the news. Karl Barth, a Swiss Reformed theologian, once said, Take your Bible and take your newspaper and read both, but interpret the newspapers from the Bible. If you get this backwards, we're in trouble. When we filter the Bible through the news, our theology conforms to our reality, which is a form of idolatry. So how do you leave the crowd behind? Well, for starters, the average person spends 142 minutes a day on social media. That represents 15% of your waking hours. Is that how you want to spend 15% of your life? When was the last time you took a day off and turned off your phone just to turn down the white noise? That's one way you turn up the still small voice of the Holy Spirit. You've got to make sure that still small voice is the loudest voice in your lives, right about now, especially. Picking up with verse 36 again through 37, it says, So they left the crowd, and a fierce windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking over the boat, so the boat was already being swamped. Let me add a little topography to the chronology. The Sea of Galilee is 700 feet below sea level, and it's surrounded by hills and mountains. The Golan Heights, which was called the Decapolis in Jesus' day, was 2,500 feet above sea level. That geography makes the Sea of Galilee susceptible to very sudden violent storms. Verse 38a says, but he, meaning Jesus, was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. A friend of mine once told me that if he ran for political office, one of his platforms would be a nationally mandated nap time. Whether you nap or not is up to you, but he thought it would be a kinder, gentler nation, a happier, healthier people if we had a mandated nap time. In all seriousness, Sleep is a stewardship issue. A NASA study found that a 26-minute nap increases productivity 34%. A lot of this depends on chronotype, which is your body's natural disposition to be awake or asleep at certain times, and circadian rhythm, which are the physical, mental, and behavioral changes that follow a 24-hour cycle. Long story short, Jesus napped. That's all I need to know. I want to be just like Jesus. Can I get an amen? Next up, let's look at the other half of verse 38, 38b. It says, So they woke him up and said to him, Teacher, don't you even care that we're going to die? I find this really fascinating. Jesus is sleeping, so evidently he doesn't care. We're awfully quick to assign blame, aren't we? We're awfully quick to attribute wrong motives, am I right? In stressful situations, our natural tendency is to play the blame game. That's what the disciples do. In case you hadn't noticed, if you change news channels, everyone is blaming everyone for everything that's happening. We've got to stay humble and stay hungry. We've got to stay calm and carry on. We've got to stay in our lane and stay the course. Here's a couple of questions for you. Number one, how much of what you're saying is a regurgitation of the news channel you watch or the social media accounts you follow? And number two, how much of what you're saying is a recitation of the revelation you're getting from God's word? Then in verse 39, what did Jesus do? Did he get up and grab an oar? No. Did Jesus get up and start bailing water out of the boat? Nope. What did Jesus do? Well, let's look at verse 39. It says, he got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the sea, silence, be still. The wind ceased, and there was great calm. We suffer from hindsight bias. We know how every story ends, so we lose the element of surprise. We lose the shock and awe, if you will. Jesus stands up and he rebukes the wind and the waves. Why? Because he has the authority to do so. How does he do it? Three words. Silence. Be still. I sense in my spirit, in light of everything that's happening in culture, that it's a moment for the people of God to exercise their spiritual authority in a spirit of humility and rebuke the wind and the waves. This is a moment for us to stand in the gap as peacemakers, grace-givers, and tone-setters. This is a moment for us to defeat the enemy. How? Well, you better put on the full armor of God. But listen, our weapons are not physical. Our weapons have the divine power to demolish strongholds. We don't fight fire with fire. We shift the atmosphere by operating in the opposite spirit. We rebuke hate with love. We rebuke pride with humility. We rebuke cursing with blessing. We rebuke lies with truth. We rebuke injustice with righteousness. We rebuke racism with repentance and reconciliation. We rebuke cancel culture with grace. We underestimate our authority in Christ because we fail to understand our identity in Christ. Let me go back for a moment and talk about two kinds of grand gestures. Then I'll talk about two ways to cut the rope. The first kind of grand gesture is what I would call a field of dreams gesture if you build it, they will come. It's Noah building the ark. It's Abraham making the move from Harem to Shechem, even though he didn't know where he was going and how to get there. It's the little boy who gives his brown bag lunch, five loaves, two fish, to Jesus. The other kind of grand gesture is what I would call the enough is enough gesture. You hit a point of no return. It's now or never. It's David's decision to fight Goliath. It's Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refusing to bow to the 90-foot statue of a godless king named Nebuchadnezzar. It's Jesus cursing the barren fig tree. Either way, here are two ways you can cut the rope. Number one, you have to kneel down. And number two, you have to stand up. Let's talk more about the first key, you have to kneel down. I'm not sure how else to say this. We need revival. What I mean by that is is Second Chronicles 7.14, which says, Then if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sins and restore their land. We need to humble ourselves and pray and seek God first and turn from our wicked ways. Revival always starts with repentance. It's repenting of our personal sin. It's lamenting our corporate sin, and it starts with the people of God. Rodney Gypsy Smith was born on the outskirts of London in 1860. He never received a formal education, yet he lectured at Harvard. Despite his humble origins, he was invited by two sitting United States presidents to the White House. Gypsy crisscrossed the Atlantic 45 times, preaching the gospel to millions of people, and he never preached without someone surrendering their life to the lordship of Jesus Christ. Gypsy was powerfully used by God. Everywhere he went, it seemed like revival was right on his heels. But it wasn't his preaching that brought about revival. Preaching may move the hearts of men, but praying moves the heart of God. That's where revival comes in. Gypsy revealed his secret to a delegation of revivalists who sought an audience with him. They wanted to know how they could make a difference with their lives the way he had with his. His answer was simple yet profound, as timely and timeless now as it was a hundred years ago. This is what he said. Go home, lock yourself in a room, kneel down in the middle of the floor, and with a piece of chalk, draw a circle around yourself. There on your knees, pray fervently and brokenly that God would start a revival within that chalk circle. Prayer is the difference between us fighting for God and God fighting for us. Secondly, let's talk about the other key. You have to stand up. On January 30th, 1956, Martin Luther King was speaking at the First Baptist Church when he was interrupted and told his house had been bombed. That night, he was sitting at his kitchen table when he heard a voice that said, Martin, do not be afraid. Inspired by that experience, Dr. King took a stand. You may be 67 years old, as I happen to be, and one day some great opportunity stands before you and calls you to stand up for some great principle, some great issue, or some great cause, And you refuse to do it because you're afraid. You refuse to do it because you want to live longer. You're afraid that you'll lose your job or that you're going to be criticized or that you might lose all of your popularity. Or you're afraid that someone will stab you or shoot you and bomb your house. You just refuse to take a stand. Well, you may go on to live until you're 90, but you're just as dead at 67 as you would be at 90. And the cessation of breathing in your life is but a belated announcement of an earlier death of the spirit. Beloved, quit living as if the purpose of life is to arrive safely at death. Mark 440 says, why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? It's time to kneel down, stand up, and repeat. It's time to cut the rope. Thanks for listening. Join us again next time for another encouraging message from God's Word. To find out more about our ministry, look us up on the web at www.whccnb.org. Word of Hope Christian Church. Real people. A real God. Real hope.